You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, hello, everyone up at the mills, all the early risers that are up there on this Sunday where we turn the clocks forward. And oh, how sweet it is, is it not, to think that spring is almost here That wasn't snow that was on your car this morning when you went out. That was a figment of your imagination. It is going away. I believe it. I trust it. I can't wait for that. In uh, this first Sunday of Lent, we are going to be finishing up this week and next week our series on the line between good and evil and that epic battle that we face in that struggle between good and evil. And we've talked about how that line runs through each of us. We have met the enemy, and it is us. The battle with temptation is real. It is constant. Evil infects not just individuals, not just we as individuals, but but also infects organizations, institutions, systems of every kind. In fact, evil is pervasive, and I know this isn't a surprise to any of us, even in religion. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about when religion goes bad. And to begin the sermon today, I want to invite a couple volunteers to come on up here. I need a couple volunteers. I asked them to come up and do this. We're going to do a little experiment here. I have a couple bottles of milk in front of us. Come over, come over here, guys. Get close. Get close. Get close. We've got to all get in the camera. Smile. Wave to everybody up at the mills. Um, and I need you guys to test this if it's drinkable. All right? I'm not saying drink it, but test it. Let me see which one. That one don't smell too good. That's right, it doesn't. Thank you guys very much. This one obviously is a little sour. And you know what happens when milk turns sour? It stinks. What do we do? We turn up our nose. You saw, yeah, if you need to run out, you can go right out that door right there, Frank, okay? I don't think we have any barf bags in our pews today. But um, yeah, that's it's. That metaphor, I want to use that and keep that in your mind because the Bible says that we are the aroma of Christ. Paul writing to his Corinthians, and he put it in a positive sense there, you know, the sweet aroma. But I think sometimes Christians can awfully stink. Can we not stink? We can can be a bad aroma. And because of that, people will turn their nose up at religion. I want to talk about that today. Why do people turn their nose up? At religion. How many of you know people that figuratively have turned their nose up at religion? Religion's all bad. It's no good. I don't want anything to do with it. It's just, uh, it's just a mess. So, so I think, I think uh, they do that because it becomes a pretense. Religion is, is for many people a false way of showing something. We pretend. It's a facade. It's a charade. It's a sham. And spoiled milk looks just as good as, as fresh milk until you smell it and then you realize it's gone sour. And I think that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, they claim to be pure, they claim to be fresh, they claim to be good for you, but you get close enough to them, you hear what they say, you see what they do, you see the fruit of their lives, and you don't want to have anything to do with it. You turn your nose up at it. And so that's what I'm really wanting to talk about today. And our text, our key text is from the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. 
And it says, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You might know that as, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. So how is it that people misuse his name? Now, the first thing we think of is when people use, use God's name in a swear word. And, and I'm sure that that is breaking that commandment, the third commandment. But I think it's far bigger than that. I think that God takes personal offense when we use God's name for ungodly action, ungodly behavior. Any affiliation or association with him that denigrates God's character and God's reputation is offensive to God. And that is misusing the name of God. So when I claim to be a Christian, I claim to be a God follower, and I do things that are ungodly, we are breaking that third commandment. We are taking God's name in vain because we are misusing the name of God. And there's many ways that we do that, many ways that people of all religions do that. And, uh, and so I just want to mention a few of them today. And the first one is this, that religion turns sour when it becomes a pretense for self-gratification. When, it, when we use religion for our own selfish desires. Now, I think a lot of people start off well, but in the end, they, they tend to use it to gratify their own, their own needs. And, um, and I think what happens is, you know, we come to God and we all hope that, you know, well, we want God to bless us, right? I mean, I, who doesn't want God to make their lives better? Who doesn't want God's help? We need God to help us. So there is always that part of, I need God in my life. There's a difference between needing God and using God. Do you understand that? Using God is different than needing God. Using God for our own selfish ambitions, our own selfish desires, our own selfish agendas is when we get it upside down. We all come to God hoping he'll bless us, but eventually we need to come to the place in our faith where we mature and we realize that it's not about me. My turning to God is not about me. It's about God who's God, and I am humbling myself and coming to God and saying, God, it's about you. It's about loving you and honoring you, and it's about taking your word seriously and being able to bless the world with the good news of Jesus Christ and giving it away to others. So, so some people just don't figure that out. I, I had a great conversation recently with somebody who said, you know, since I've been coming to Riverside, I've noticed that I pray differently. I used to pray, God, here's my shopping list. Here's my want list. Here's my need list. God, I'm giving it to you. Please fill it in for me. And now she said, I pray, God, here I am. I want to do your bidding. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be your chosen vessel. I want you to use me to bless others. Do you notice the switch in that kind of prayer? And, and I'm glad to hear that somebody who comes to Riverside gets that message because I hope that we put that out there loudly and clearly week after week that it is God does want to bless you. God wants to help you, wants to fix you, forgive you, heal you, bless you. But God does that. So that you might be God's hands and feet extended and you might bless the world around you. But some people don't figure that out. And they take it to believe that it's about getting all that they want. And when it's about getting all you want, you tend to misuse the name of God. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, God says, Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. Lord. 
This is the message. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Should not shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, and you let your flocks starve. You've not taken care of the weak. You've not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You've not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animals. Do you not think that Jesus was thinking of this verse whenever he came and said, I am the good shepherd? When he told the story about the lost sheep, don't you think that Jesus understood that as coming into this world to proclaim the gospel of what God is like and to demonstrate it and show it with his own life, that he was saying it's about how we are to invest in others. Jesus said to the the Pharisees, he said, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship is a farce. Religion turns sour when it becomes a pretense for us looking good, for us trying to impress others. Seven times in in, in Matthew 23, he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, you hypocrites. Everything you do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor, banquets, and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect and marketplaces and called a rabbi by others. And he just goes on and on and on. That whole chapter of Matthew 23, Jesus is, is, is exposing the stench of religion that had gone sour in his day. And how many people will not darken the door of a church because they have seen this very kind of behavior among people who claim to be Christ followers? I mean, examples are all around us. You don't even need to go to church to see it. I'm sorry. But some of the easiest examples are some, not all, but some of the televangelists that we see. How many people, when flipping through their television, will land on a station and they'll see one of these hucksters out there and anybody can see through what they're doing, but the people that they are taking advantage of, the people that are desperate, the people that are poor, the people that might not understand that they are there, and many, not all of them, not all of them, but you know the ones that are using manipulative tools to try to get people to support them or to make them rich. And in fact, they will prey on people's desire to be rich in order for them to get the money from them so they can get rich. You know how that goes, don't you? You know how it goes. Plant your seed here, put in this kind of money, and I know God's going to multiply it a hundred times fold for you, and you're going to get rich. And it's almost like they're asking people to spin the wheel and put their money down on this evangelist, and if, the, and, and if it hits, they win big. But you know as well as I do that gambling usually does not work out for the gambler. It works out for the casino. It works out for the one that's played, that, that made the game. And there are a lot of people that are making games out there for weak-minded people who are, who are wanting to get rich, and they think that God is there to make them rich. One televangelist, his slogan is, is strike it rich with God. That's his slogan. And uh, he was on television for years, and then he got exposed by ABC and... He's still doing it on the internet. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Living in 
80 million dollar homes and taking the money with the prayer cards in them and you know pray you know send this in and I'll pray for you and they then it goes right to the bank and they throw them away he doesn't even pray for them and they cash the checks and laugh all the way to the bank this is reprehensible I don't I don't have a problem with television ministries that are saying if you believe in what we're saying if you believe that the message we have is good then support it In order to stay on the air, we need you to support what we're doing. There's nothing wrong with that if their ministry is good. Just like PBS says, you believe in the programming, then support it. Why not be upfront about it? Don't use manipulation to try to trick people into giving. And and if they can't support it, then maybe, maybe you shouldn't compromise your standards. and, and, And we turn more people away from Christ then we draw people to Christ using ungodly behavior like that. And, I mean, that's an easy target. We can look at them. But, but how many priests, ministers, youth leaders, church volunteers have used their position to get close to children, to misuse and abuse children for their own selfish gratification? How many people worldwide have been turned away from from the good news of the gospel because of people that have misused the name of God to take advantage of other people? People do it all the time in even subtle ways. I mean, how many politicians, celebrities, business owners, whoever, you know, they'll use God to make themselves look good. We'll wear the cross even though what we do is so, so reprehensible to God. Because we want to put on a facade. Oh, we're a Christian. I have a cross. That cross isn't a license. It is the key for your freedom to be set free from sin, not a license to sin. So are there ways that you in your life, me in my life, do we ever miss you? Say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not like those people. I'm not this way. But are there ways that you use your faith to try to put on a front for people to think you're good? How many times we come to church, I want people to look at me. I want people to notice me. How many times we put up our status updates because we want to impress people with our religion and our spirituality. Is it not easy to do such a thing in this world? Do we not use God sometimes to manipulate and control people? I mean... I know as a, as a public figure, as a leader standing up in front, I am most susceptible to using God to manipulate people. And, and, and God forbid, God forbid. It is so easy to do, but we must be careful. It's easy to be a pretender. But what happens is eventually people get close enough and they smell you and it stinks. I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to get that close to it. I don't know which one is the bad one, but I'm not even going to test it. So religion, religion turns sour when it's a pretense for self-gratification. And it's easy to be a pretender. It's easy to be a pretender. So let me ask you, are you pretending? Have you... Have you gone from saying, yeah, God, it's about you to God. I really need, I really, really mean it's about me. Have you been using God to just try to find your way into a certain relationship or maybe a way to impress others? We really need to check our, check our motives. 
Because if your religion has gone sour, I, I, need to, I need to be a friend to you. If you are claiming to be a Christian, but your life looks totally unlike Christ, I want you to know something. You stink. You stink. Your religion stinks. And, and as a friend to you, I need to tell you, you need to fix that. You need to get right about that. Religion turns sour also when it's a pretense for violence. Most people who aren't Christians, you ask them why, and they'll, they'll point to this as one of the main reasons why they aren't, not just Christians, but believers in God of all kinds. February 25, 1994, Baruch Goldstein, an American-born Israeli physician, was living in a settlement in the West Bank, the Palestinian area of, uh, of that uh, segment of, of Israel, outside the town of Hebron, which is a Palestinian town. And he went into a room in a 1,300-year-old mosque that was built over the temple of the, patriarch, of, the, of the tomb of the patriarchs, which is where it is believed that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah were all buried in, in that, that tomb of the patriarchs near Hebron there. And, and the mosque was built over it in the six, 600s. And he put on his Israeli army uniform. Everybody in Israel has to serve in the army. And so they, they, he put on the image that he was on active duty. He was a reserve officer on active duty. And as the people were coming to the mosque to pray, or maybe as they were leaving the mosque to pray, he opened fire and just started slaughtering the people, killing 29, wounding 125 others. And eventually he was subdued and he was killed. And the Israeli government, the official government, condemned his actions. But the sad thing is that there were other Israelis who erected a monument to him and called him a saint and a hero for what he did that day. We all know on September 11, 2001, moments before those planes went crashing into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and landed in the field up near Somerset, that some of the last words they said in Arabic was, God is great. So in Judaism and Islam and in Christianity, unfortunately, we're not exempt from that kind of behavior. I mean, history is replete with examples of using God to invoke violence and horrendous acts. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, heretics being burned at the stake, Christians being burned by other Christians, um, we, 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 we see how even the KKK claims to be a Christian organization, um, bombings at abortion clinics. I could go on and on and on how people who claim to be Christians in the name of Christ, Christ will use violence to kill and murder people. Each time somebody does it, they, they can easily justify it by looking at their scriptures. I mean, the Quran, Muhammad was a warrior who unified the Arabian Peninsula. So passages in the Quran speak of, of killing and murder. Judaism, I mean, there are 33 city-states that were completely annihilated by Joshua and the occupying armies when they occupied the promised land. And people can look to that and say, see, God did that, told the people to do that. Can we not do the same to the infidels that aren't believers? 
I find it difficult in Christianity to justify slaughtering your enemies when our Lord and Savior is the very one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And yet Christians will do that. And atheists love to point that out. Atheists love to say, well, see, that's why religion is so bad. You know, that's why, you know, we can sing, imagine, you know, that there's no religion, you know, that if there's no religion, there'll be peace on earth. But we tried that last century. And, and Soviet Union was an officially atheist country, China, Cambodia, Vietnam. And under these atheist regimes... Tens of millions of people were murdered and slaughtered in the name of atheism. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that the bottom line is human beings have a bent toward violence. Human beings, no matter who you are, believer, non-believer, have a bent toward murder and violence. But the thing is, our faith is meant to restrain us. It is meant to hold us back. It is meant to teach us to say, I will not kill in the name of God. This is how I believe Jesus taught, Jesus uh, practiced, and Jesus wanted his followers to practice. And it is because of their nonviolent actions in that early church that the church spread so drastically as they were martyred for their faith. They, yeah, they stood up, they exposed the, 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 the evil, but they paid a price for that, and each time they paid a price, the gospel spread until Christianity became the empire, and then the power of the empire used their Christianity to justify conquering others. Violence in the name of religion, violence in the name of Christ is reprehensible. It stinks. You might say, well, I've not killed anybody. No, but you know, we kill people with our words too. Hatred in the name of religion smells equally revolting. Paul said elsewhere, you are our letter known and read by all people. In this day of... uh, Social connectedness, Christians can get their message out a whole lot easier. They can write their emails. I wonder if Paul were writing today, he'd say, you are our email. You are our Facebook status update, known and read by all men. Think about that next time you make your status update about hating others. About why you're right and everybody else is wrong. Think about that. How does that smell? How does that smell to the people that read that? That might not think exactly the way you think. Oh, you're a Christian. That's what Christ is like. I I don't see that in the life of Jesus. There's a good book I recommend called When Religion Becomes Evil, Five Warning Signs by Charles Kimball. And he talks about these five warning signs. Number one is when we rigidly make absolute truth claims. When there's blind obedience to a charismatic leader. When there's belief in an ideal time when a particular religion is going to rule. Belief that the end justifies any means. 
And the fifth one is when there's a declaration of holy war. Now, regarding absolute truth claims, I have them. I believe there's one God. I believe that that one God appeared to us in his son, Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus showed us the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus is the way. I believe that. I believe that Jesus' death on the cross was God's sacrifice for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus empowered the church with the Holy Spirit and the church spread with the good news of Jesus and and lived it and proclaimed it. And that's why that movement took off. And I agree with Pastor Adam Hamilton who said, he's willing to die for that. I'm willing to die for that, but I'm not willing to kill for that. Those absolute truth claims are tempered by the fact that I, I know that I just might be wrong. Does that make sense? I, I believe 99% that all of this is true, but I leave room for that 1% that, 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 that I might not be right in that. Because if I, if I believed that I was absolutely right, where would the need for faith be? Right? I can't prove what I believe to others 100%. I can't prove that I'm right to anybody, that, 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 that 100% right in that. Now, I believe in the evidence. I believe in the witnesses of the, of the first followers. I believe in the historical records of Christ. I believe in, in the spread of Christ and the Christianity. And I believe in the records of the writings of the apostles. I believe in all of that. I believe that, but I can't absolutely prove that 100%. And I'm a better Christian when I hang around people who believe differently than me. That, that maybe your faith, you might believe your, your religion. You might believe 100% that there is no God. You might believe that, that your religion is right. But if you believe that there's a 1% chance that I might be right, and I believe there's a 1% chance that you might be right, then that's grounds for a friendship. That's grounds to talk. That's grounds to understand that, that I might have the truth, but I am not going to take my absolute truth claim and use it to hate you or to hurt you. The problem isn't that we have these foundational truths that I'm willing to die for. The problem is that over time, we just pile up on these absolute foundational truths, all kinds of rigid beliefs that we use to draw lines. And, and you've seen, I mean, how many denominations are there in Christianity? Because on top of the, the, the foundational truths of perhaps the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed that they've, they worked through and they argued through to formulate over centuries of, of debate in the church, and then they come to these, and then we, we will add on to these so many other things. And all of that is to say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm in and you're out. I'm a saint. You're a sinner. You're with us. You're against us. If you don't believe the way I believe, then I believe you're a heretic. And if I believe you're a heretic, then, then let's burn you at the stake. That kind of polarization stinks. What is it? That, that, that we see that. That's good. 
That kind of polarization stinks. No, I'm not going to try it. Beware of... Beware of that tendency to worry about who's in and who's out. You know, I I read my Bible, Jesus told a parable about the wheat and the tares, that in heaven, God's going to figure that all out. You know, I don't know. I can't tell. I'll let God be the one to figure out who's the wheat and who's the tares. I just want to make sure I'm the wheat. I just want to do what I believe and stay true to my faith. But that polarization in politics, race relations, almost every part of life is so dangerous. We end up demonizing people. We place them in the category of the other. We dehumanize them. And when we dehumanize people, it's just a short step away for justifying killing them. And also, beware of the, of the leader who doesn't let you question him. November 18th, 1978 is a day that I'll never forget. That was the day that I knelt down and I asked Teresa Kraft to be my wife. And she said, yes. Unfortunately, little to our knowledge did we know that was the day that in a jungle outside of um, Georgetown, I believe it is, Guyana, a group of people who followed a charismatic leader to start this agricultural commune so they could have this utopian community of all kinds of people, different races, different statuses, all people coming and living together out there without the oppression of government and other people looking at them. That was the day that in Jonestown, Guyana, 900 and uh, how many people? 918 people drank the Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. Jim Jones was popular. He was a preacher, started in Indiana, Indianapolis, moved out to San Francisco, very popular. Politicians loved him, supported him, People's Temple, big church, doing a lot of great things for the community. And yet uh, there was something inside of him that was very dark, very dark. We, we see the stories of Jim Jones, the David Koresh's, all of these are extreme cases but people that use religion to get a following, use their charismatic abilities to get people to to be with them. I mean, we want our church to grow. The problem is that so many people that have ministries and are in public eye, it goes to their head, they are full of ego, and their motives become about their ego more than it becomes about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they don't even know it. So I just want to say to you, and I don't think I need to because so many of you tell me, you're allowed to disagree with me. <laughs> you, you Take what I say and look at Scripture and judge for yourselves. That's okay. Don't blindly follow me or don't blindly follow anyone. Because Jesus tells us to love God with our minds as well as to love God with our hearts. Blaise Pascal said... Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious convictions. People who misuse the name of God are a stench to others. So many people turn their nose up at religion because of this kind of extremism. And then that gets to the last point I want to make here is don't religion turns sour when it's a pretense to judge others. 
that goes along with that. You know, in the official Roman dogma, Protestants are followers of Jesus, but they're lesser followers of Jesus. Why? Why? Is it because if we say that they are, say, they are followers of Jesus, that they might not come to our church and we want to keep them here, so we need to make sure we tell people that if you're Protestant, then you're not quite fully there. You're lesser than. And you might say, well, but Protestants, how many Protestants will say Catholics? They're not real Christians. You know, it goes both ways. People are always drawing lines of who's orthodox. And if you're not exactly the way I believe, then you are on the out. You're not quite as good as you may not have it. I mean, do not Catholics believe in the deity of Jesus? Don't they believe that they're sinners in need of God's mercy? Don't they believe that Jesus died on the cross and his sacrifice was for their sins? Don't they come to God in repentance and confession? Don't they ask God to be their Savior and their Lord? Don't they believe he's coming again? Don't they pray? Don't they worship? Sometimes pray and worship more than many Protestants do. If they're not Christians, tell me, what are they? What are they? And yet, you know, in this, especially in the last century, I think before the world became much smaller with the, with the ease of communication, Christianity was all about drawing lines, and therefore we have thousands of different denominations. Why do we do that? Because if you disagree with me, then it threatens me. It, I might be wrong, and I don't like to be wrong. And so if you disagree with me, I'm threatened by the fact that you disagree with me, and I don't like to be wrong, so... So I need to decide how I'm going to respond to you if you don't agree with me. I either try to convert you or I, or, or, or I call you a heretic. Or maybe I just hold on to my beliefs a little more lightly. Isn't it okay for people to disagree? Can we not see things from our vantage point? Is not a vantage point a point from one vantage place? And all you have is that one, and other people have other perspectives? Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, was talking about the war. And, and he said that in the North and in the South, both read from the same Bible, prayed to the same God, and each one invoked his aid against the other. I don't know about you, but when I was a new believer, when I first read through the Bible, I, I had all the answers. When, it's like that first year of college. You go away and you learn things that you didn't learn at home, and then you come back and you're the expert. You know, I, I knew it all back then. I knew the Bible. I was sure. God had changed my life. I felt it. I knew it. I was transformed. It was from the inside out. It was real. I believed it. I read it. And I was convinced that everything in there was exactly the way I interpreted it to be true. But I have to say that 40 years later, my beliefs have changed a little bit. Haven't yours? My beliefs have there are some things I believe less strongly and some things I might believe more strongly or maybe differently. And you know what? I think that's a mark of maturity because 
Because you become a more spiritually mature person as you grow older. As you become more spiritually mature, I think you might be less certain of certain things, but your faith grows deeper. I have less certainty, but deeper faith. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean that you know more stuff. But the more you grow spiritually, the more you realize, I don't know everything. God's bigger than me. I can't figure it all out. There's a lot of mystery in this whole thing. And I'm not 100% sure. That's why I need faith. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. John Wesley said, when I was young, I was sure of everything. In a few years, having been mistaken a thousand times, I was not half so sure of most things as I was before. At present, I'm hardly sure of everything but what God has revealed to me. So if you think that three pounds of gray matter in your head underneath that skull of yours can completely figure God out, I am sorry, your God is way too small. Your God is way too small. The point is we need to be humble. My hope for you, as well as me, is that we would be the kind of people who beautifully reflect Christ to our culture. As I said, Paul wrote, we are the aroma of Christ. As people get to know you, what kind of aroma are people sensing from you? Is your aroma drawing people to Christ? Or are you driving people away? I I can't help but read the Facebook updates. I I, I see the, the status updates. I see what people are passing around as Christians in the name of their political views, in the name of whatever it is, there's, there's a place to have a healthy debate about things and the way to fix things and the way to make things right. I'm, I'm okay with that. But when it's tinged with hatred, when it's tinged with ugliness, it stinks. People are turning their nose up at Christ because of you. Can I challenge you? Grow up. Mature, be humble, believe that God wants you in the letters that you write to be pleasing to God. I want to close with just three scriptures here. And then I'm going to ask Dave, David up at the mills to, to wrap things up and to lead you in a response and a prayer time. <clears throat> this is what the scripture says. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What kind of letter are people reading in you? James says, you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue. You're fooling yourself. Your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. One other passage, Ephesians 4. 
Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So David, I'm going to turn it over to you now, and and I invite you up at the mills to just humble yourselves before God, as I do everybody here in Oakmont. Would you do that? Would you bow your heads with me, please? You know, Lent is a season of self-examination. I don't know how many people go through Lent and they don't, they don't even understand the meaning of it. Well, that's just a religious ritual. We put ashes on because we're supposed to. Well, no, we do it because it's a sign of humility and repentance and to remember that we are dust. Lent is a season of saying, God, I, 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 I want to examine myself and humble myself. I, I need to fast and turn away from things. That's why people give up things. It's a form of fasting. It's saying, I, I want to I I humble myself and realize that everything I have is so temporary and I'm willing to give it up now because I will always, I will give it all up someday. So we invite people to give up their pocket change just for Lent. It's a time to examine ourselves. Say, God, I want to be right with you. Jesus, you sacrificed your life for me. You gave it all for me. I need to, I need to, I need to ask myself, am I a true reflection of you to my community? Jesus, if you were in my skin, would people be drawn to God or would they be turned away from God? Because you are the body of Christ. And if you're here today and you're saying, I need to, I need to get right. I've messed up. I realize that I've hurt others. Maybe even have used God as my justification for that. And I'm sorry. You've said what you shouldn't. You've passed around poison that you shouldn't. You did what you know was a misrepresentation of Christ. And I want to invite you this morning to get right, to pray for forgiveness. Say, God, I don't, I don't want people to turn their, their nose up at you because of me. Help me to be a better representation of Christ. Fill me with your love and compassion and mercy. Help me to be humble about my faith, not to give it up, but to be humble about it and to treat others with respect that may not believe the way I believe. God, you're going to be the one to judge them in the end, not me. God, help me. Help me, God. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.